What are you reading now? And what have you read in the past? How do the things you've read in the past help you better understand what you're reading today? Or in the future for that matter? And what if it wasn't just what you read, but what you listened to or watched? And hey, what if this could be shared with lots of folks? Welcome to That Reminds Me. This is episode 1D, featuring a conversation between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna, recorded on 22 November 2019. Ashish and Adish talked about St. Augustine, Tyler Cowan's Big Business, and Kelsey Miller's I'll Be There For You. All right, Adish, good morning and welcome to, this is now what, Beyond Beta, so round three of our uh, conversations about that reminded me. Uh, I think this is Delta. But oh, it's Delta, is it? Uh, well, ga- Gamma got lost when we forgot to record, uh, but, but <laughs> I, I don't think we're up to actual numbers yet. It'll be awesome if the podcast gets popular enough for that to be worth many millions, the lost episode. One can hope, one can dream. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Uh, four episodes that we hope to speak about in... Uh, today's conversation. We'll get to each of the four in turn, but let's begin with the one that I actually know the least about and therefore I'm the most excited about. This is the conversation that uh, Russ, sorry, my fault. This is Augustine's Confessions on BBC Radio 4. Melvin Bragg, I think. Okay. So as I was saying, the reason I'm so excited about this is because I know very, very little about St. Augustine and just reading your notes about the conversation helped me understand a couple of things that I need to learn more about. But why don't we begin by you giving us a brief overview of the episode itself? Yeah, so I think even before we get to the brief overview of the episode, let's mm-hmm. have a brief overview of St. Augustine. Sure. St. Augustine is considered one of the founding or more influential people behind the Roman Catholic Church today. But oddly enough, and we'll get to that, the Protestant Church considers him even more relevant to their church than to the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. He was born in, I think, the 400s or the 500s. Uh, No, he he was born in the 4th century and lived and died in the 5th century, 354 uh, to 430. This was, needless to say, a time when books, printing was non-existent and books were not very widespread. So the fact that when he wrote a book and he did, he wrote a series of books called the Confessions and right. the, the fact that they've made it to the present day is itself remarkable. All right. And now on to the episode itself. What was the episode about the gist of it? Well, the episode title is Augustine's Confessions. And the books which he has written are collectively called the Confessions. Okay. But as this is in our time, it does explore a lot of things around the Confessions, including Augustine's personal life and also the later impact of Augustine's work. So go through them one by one. In terms of his personal life, he was born in what we would consider modern-day Algeria or uh, modern-day Libya which was at the time under the control of the Roman Empire. And his father was Roman, but his mother was a local Berber. So he is a half Roman, half Berber, African Roman who grows up in North Africa, goes to uh, 
Europe to study, comes back to Africa to be a priest. And in terms of his personal life, his mother is extremely ambitious. She's she's come out of poverty. So she really wants her son to get a high ranking uh, position either in the government or in the church so that the family can make its money. Now, if we look at where we might have heard of uh, St. Augustine prior to this episode, mm-hmm. one one quote which frequently comes up is uh, Augustine's uh, Augustine talking about how he has been a sinner in early life and how he has found God after sinning so much. And uh, his 10 books, the confessions are pretty much about that path. Okay. And uh, there is a Bob Dylan song called uh, called I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. I can't quite remember the lyrics right now. <laughs> All right. More than enough for us to get started with. Let's uh, begin with the second point that you mentioned on your uh, blog post about Augustine believing that original sin was not lust, but pride. The story behind original sin is that yeah. uh, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates yes. uh, inside the Garden of Eden, which uh, has a number of uh, trees. Mm-hmm. He he warns uh, uh, Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of knowledge. Right. The serpent uh, shows up and tells Eve, you should uh, eat. Uh, the, you should eat this fruit. There's, uh, uh, go go ahead and eat the fruit. Eve does eat the fruit. She gains knowledge. She makes Adam eat the fruit also. And having knowledge, uh, they realize that uh, each one realizes that the other is naked, and they uh, immediately uh, make themselves clothes to co- cover up their shame. At which point, God realizes that they've eaten the fruit of knowledge and right. throws them out of the Garden of Eden, which is called the fall of man or the and coming out of the original sin. Now, the popular conception of the original sin is that the sin in question is lust. Wherein having uh, seen each other naked, having knowledge uh, of lust, and uh, they start lusting after each other, and this is why God kicks them out. According to St. Augustine, the sin in question is not lust, the sin in question is pride, because it is Eve's pride and her feeling that she knows better than God, and she knows better than to follow God's instructions, which leads her to eat the fruit. Right. I would not just argue that uh, the second argument is more persuasive, but uh, the thing that I'm reminded of the most strongly is, uh, have you seen the movie The Big Shot? I haven't. So uh, both the book and the movie speak about this. Uh, I can't for the life of me remember the name of the guy, but the role played by Steve Carroll. Uh, two young Jewish boys in a home and uh, one of the boys is reading the Talmud in order to find out inconsistencies in the word of God. Okay. In other words, the original sin, I would go so far as to say, is not even pride. It just is questioning authority. One thing which I've been thinking about a lot is uh, how difficult uh, it is to draw lines between uh, pride and self-esteem and vanity and how you can very uh, quickly slip from uh, one of these to, uh, to the other. And while it's very clear that in some ways they are maybe sin is a strong word but they are destructive mm-hmm. uh, either either to yourself or to others but uh, you probably c- 
can't make a decent life without a little bit of self approval or self esteem right and i don't know if it's really possible to draw a clear line between that and pride <laughs> it depends on who's asking whether it is the people in power or the person who is questioning that position of power right so if you think about religion from a evolutionary perspective it just is a well not just is perhaps too strong a word but it is a code of or a set of codes or rules that is going to guarantee the survival of society so from that view point saying don't go against the word of god simply saying don't go against what we have said are the rules it just is a way for us to perpetuate ourselves from that perspective the original sin being pride isn't so much pride as just don't question authority is uh, the point that i was most strongly reminded of okay so that being one and the second or the third bullet point in your blog post actually kind of relates to this the determination that augustine's mother had to see her younger son do well so two perspectives there one uh, family is a subset of religion but the second that i'll get to in a little while is stories about your great grandmother but first the family link between augustine's mother his upbringing and augustine himself would you speak about that yeah so augustine as uh, as i said earlier is a young man in north africa mm-hmm. uh, okay. this is part of the roman empire so augustine is a citizen or a subject of the roman empire but he is not an italian or even a european he's half european half berber his mother is berber which is the uh, which is local north african tribe she has married a minor uh, uh, roman official okay and had augustine and augustine's brother but the roman official is very minor so uh, she is really determined for the family to rise in society and to rise within the roman empire she has this very clever young boy uh, augustine and mm-hmm. she wants him to get ahead as much as possible and she sees him as becoming a roman provincial governor marrying a rich woman and getting the family a massive dowry okay and yeah she has very material uh, ambitions for augustine and because the only way we know about uh, this is through augustine himself we have augustine's mm-hmm. view of this okay it's important to mention that uh, one of the major points about augustine is that uh, he has a concubine and okay. which may be a misleading term because we're talking about a time when he would be in his teens or his early 20s wow. so okay. so let's say he has a girlfriend mm-hmm. uh he says in his uh, uh confessions these ten books that he's extremely in love with her the panelists raise a point that because there is a major uh, societal difference between them even mm-hmm. if he is uh, in love with her it is quite possible that uh, this young woman being so uh, uh, poor and uh, f- uh, from a much lower societal background is in quite an exploitative relationship with augustine but again since we have only augustine's account for it we'll never really know right and uh, augustine is being forced by his mother to give up this girlfriend because if he marries her he, he can't marry the rich daughter of a uh, roman politician and pri- 
bring home the dowry and he uh, and he can't himself rise in roman society right so yeah the, he has this extremely ambitious uh, mother he uh, has to give up his uh, childhood girlfriend and ultimately he does go along with it he does uh, become a major figure in the roman catholic church but uh, it, uh, i again i've not read the uh, confessions myself but i get the feeling that he's doing it with uh, some sense of loss and sadness that he's lost his old girlfriend for whom mm-hmm. for whom he seemed to have very uh, sincere and close feelings okay and the second point uh, related to this is about your own great grandmother yeah also, so you say gathered wood in the forest yeah so like augustine's mother monica uh, my great grandmother viraman uh, walikhanna uh, is according to the fa- uh, fa- family stories have gathered uh, wood in the forest and milk goats to uh, sell so that uh, her three sons could uh, get educated mm-hmm. and uh, very much like uh, augustine's mother she did all she could to get one of the sons educated and married to a rich woman Mm-hmm. so that the uh, other two brothers could uh, have a little uh, capital to raise themselves up <laughs> fascinating okay moving on to another point and one that uh, reminded me of a essay by david perel recently this is about christian theology being the sort of faith that makes you want to find out something more than just faith so before i speak about what it reminded me of could you explain what you yourself meant by this so a lot of the in our time uh, episodes in the last couple of years that i've listened to mm-hmm. whenever in our time has taken up a theologian or uh, taken up an aspect of theology it seems to go for theologians who see religion as more than just faith and who try to uh, find a justification either for god or for virtue or for a uh, mode of behavior mm-hmm. that doesn't just uh, that relies on more than just faith okay the thing that this reminded me the most of was like i said a recent essay by uh, david perel on peter thiel okay and david perel makes a point that peter thiel being peter thiel is a direct consequence of peter thiel's religious belief about christianity being in a sense i'm paraphrasing over here but upward looking okay and what i mean by that is the christian beliefs that peter thiel has encourages peter thiel to want to do better is that something that you had in mind when you spoke about the difference between uh, christianity and hinduism for example no not really okay because within the essay itself and again i don't have the essay in front of me this is from memory so perhaps i'm getting the specific details wrong but the idea is peter thiel often mentions that or uh, david perel often mentions that peter thiel is peter thiel because you want to be able to build something outside of what religion will give for you as an individual it's more societal than it is individualistic okay and therefore as a consequence being of a christian faith in a sense almost forces peter thiel to do better by his own yardstick for society it isn't so much inward looking as it is outward looking 
and i interpreted what you wrote about over here as being something more than just faith faith rewarding the inner self or the inner soul but faith as a code of a set of codes that helps you do better for society allowing people to do better for society itself is i'm wondering if that might be one of the differences between hinduism and christianity so i think that both uh, hinduism and christianity are much more diverse than a single stereotype sure of course uh, both now and in the uh, and in the past uh, because one of the uh, things this episode also talks about is just how many uh, sects there were at the time uh, augustine was operating uh, mm-hmm. about uh, three of which no longer exist anymore okay but uh, we we can come back to that later i suppose so if if you if you're talking about that i suppose that there are a large number of uh, uh, churches both protestant and uh, catholic mm-hmm. where uh, the where the followers are encouraged to uh, work primarily on faith right and uh, there there would be other churches where uh, faith is not the be all and end all and you're also encouraged to live a virtuous life okay and the same would be true for a number of different uh, hindu uh, traditions as well okay you also mentioned over here uh, about who in hinduism might have that sort of approach and you say in parenthesis is certainly not the bhagavad gita yeah could you build on that a little bit why so, would you think the bhagavad gita doesn't have that approach so uh, according to me the bhagavad gita is uh, there is certainly a tradition where people focus on only chapter 2 of the bhagavad gita mm-hmm. which is where we get the one shloka about uh, focus on your actions and not on the fruit of your actions right but uh, i i feel that if you take the bhagavad gita as a whole what we see in the bhagavad gita is uh, that chapter by chapter arjuna expresses particular doubts uh, to to krishna right. krishna uh, krishna for the first uh, many chapters comes up with reasoned arguments to uh, f- for arjuna to not have doubts for arjuna to go and fight but over maybe 15 or 16 chapters mm-hmm. this voice of reason is not able to uh, convince uh, arjuna at all right and it's only when uh, krishna reveals himself to be uh, the cosmic force and uh, the god uh, the god almighty that arjuna is terrified uh, uh, seeing this vision of krishna as god he mm-hmm. uh, and all his all the earlier reason based uh, arguments or uh, prudence based arguments of the last uh, 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 16 or 17 chapters are dropped <laughs> and and he says uh, Not, nothing is left to me now except uh, faith or bhakti and i'm going to go and fight because you're god and you've told me to do it so i mean if 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 you take uh, an individual chapter or an individual shloka of the bhagavad gita by itself then sure there, there's a lot of uh, reasoning inside it 
if you look at the Bhagavad Gita as a whole, it's uh, it seems it, it seems to be a satire of reason, and it seems to be uh, pu- putting out a message that ultimately faith will uh, be more important than any reason-based arguments that you might bring to a discussion of theology or to a discussion of life for that matter. Weirdly, and in a sort of closing the loop over here, this, this reminds me of Eve choosing to disregard God's instructions. So go by faith and not by trying to reason it out yourself seems to be the message then in both the original sin that we just spoke about as well as Bhagavad Gita. Right. Truly fascinating. Okay. And I don't think we have the time to delve into this in too much detail. I wish we did. But could you very quickly speak about uh, how this relates to what you spoke about with regards to Buddhism? So, uh, my uh, the one of the most meaningful bo- books I've read this year uh, has been Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. Okay. I think Robert Wright. And... Uh, uh, it's also something I discovered through uh, uh, an Econ Talk p- podcast. All right. And uh, this is a book which uh, makes a very heavy case that uh, the teachings of uh, the Buddha are parallel with uh, what we know today from psychology uh, or even from uh, uh, evolutionary development. So, uh, the uh, the book spends a lot of time saying ignore the supernatural uh, aspects of Buddhism. But once mm-hmm. you strip those away, the the teachings are very useful for uh, getting through life. Well, okay, duly bookmarked, and hopefully I'll get around to reading it before the year is out. Okay, uh, I'm tempted to jump into Neil Stephenson, but that can take us off on multiple tangents. So let's just speak about stealing pairs for fun. Yeah, so uh, one of the uh, major uh, stories in St. Augustine's Confessions is Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about how, as a boy, he has a group of friends. They see a pear orchard and they decide that they want to uh, steal uh, pears uh, just for the fun of it. Right. Or uh, let's say they, they want to steal pears. They do steal the pears, and they aren't hungry. They mm-hmm. they don't want to eat the pears. So having stolen the pears, they just uh, throw the uh, pears to uh, uh, to the pigs for the pigs to eat. August Augustine apparently goes into this extremely long self-examination uh, of this incident, and goes into this position of uh, if I was uh, not even hungry. Why did I steal the pears? And the only reason is that I am intrinsically wicked. And this comes back to the uh, uh, point about original sin. Fascinating. Fascinating for two reasons. One, because of what you just spoke about. But second, because this, in a very weird way, allows me to segue into uh, the second blog post that we're going to be speaking about today. The conversation that Tyler Coven and Russ Roberts have on a book that Tyler Coven wrote recently called uh, Big Business. Important at the outset to state that uh, I have recently been awarded a grant from Emergent Ventures uh, in which Tyler Coven is very heavily invested. So take what you will, make what you will of that uh, in terms of what I have to say about Tyler Coven going forward. 
but that having been said uh, the stealing pairs for fun reminded me of a story that came out uh, i think it was the atlantic that ran with it and tyler common linked to it with regard to uh, his book on big business where when you have automated checkouts and people have the ability to walk out of a supermarket without human intervention it was observed that at least some people tend to steal not necessarily because they are evil not necessarily because they are wicked but just because they have the ability to do so i'll search for the link and we'll put it up whenever we have the podcast out in public it was a truly fascinating story and it's a weird way to jump from st augustine to modern business today yeah but uh, i mean uh, it's it's unfortunate that we've decided to uh, leave that episode behind because i think there is a lot to talk about uh, on this particular aspect and while we're talking about uh, atlantic stories a recent atlantic story that uh, brought me back to this uh, uh, position of uh, original sin or intrinsic wickedness is the mm-hmm. one they had earlier this week about uh, children who are born psychopaths and well, that I was this one. Okay. and that that was also extremely fascinating but yeah even the uh, i mean we are getting very far away from the uh, talikawan uh, episode uh, but I, so i'll try to make this quick but even the panelists uh, in the in our time episode about augustine they say look uh, stealing pears is not that evil it's kind of wicked it, it uh, it's but mo- most likely it's naughty and yeah there there is always going to be a, uh, a certain thrill in doing something wrong and getting away with it mm-hmm. or doing something wrong not even to get away with it but to see if it's possible to get away with it and right. a lot of uh, for example the modern it security industry is built on very uh, clever people trying to push the limits of systems so yeah the that kind of impulse is a little anti social but it's also very useful and maybe there are uh, filters in our head which uh, which allow us to do something which is mildly wicked but not completely wicked so just test how far we can go against established authority yeah i'm tempted to tie back tie that back to the what i think is going to become the recurrent theme of this episode about original sin <laughs> but again that's a dangerous road to go down in terms of the time that we have remaining okay but let's and i uh noted the fact that you would wish to speak a little bit more about saint augustine so we'll get back to it if you have the time but let's start speaking about uh, big business and the conversation that Russ Roberts had with Tyler Coven on big business sure for uh, everybody who is listening Tyler Coven uh, an economist at George Mason University recently wrote a book uh, i think it's called love letter to big business or something along those lines i don't remember the exact title i think it's a big business love letter to an underappreciated american hero that's the one or yeah. underrated perhaps yeah and in the book he speaks about how perhaps big business being vilified far too much for the times that we live in and the whole book is a contrarian take on how society ought to think about big business sure the conversation that Russ Roberts has is at least i listened to part of it 
I haven't listened to the whole episode, but the part that I listened to did not seem to be so much about the book itself, but about a whole variety of other things. I mean, who are we to complain about that, given what we do on this podcast? That's true. But let's begin with what uh, you took away from that conversation, beginning with Tylakov and dissing parties. Yeah. So could you tell me why parties ought to be rated a little bit more than Tylakov and seems to think they ought to be? So I forgotten the exact uh, uh, context in which this came up, but uh, mm-hmm. there was a there was a bit in this uh, interview where. Uh, uh i think tyler cowen was uh, uh, uh being contrarian against uh, how it's felt that uh, in uh, looking at your phone and checking your twitter timeline or checking your facebook or checking your uh, messages is uh, anti social comp- uh, uh, considering you could be interacting with human beings face to face at a party right and uh, he uh, took this as an opportunity to really uh, dis parties and say no uh, parties are terrible uh, all that happens at parties is that you drink a lot and listen to loud music <laughs> and it, uh, uh, it 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 presents a massive uh, opportunity cost in terms of you could be having a very interesting conversation instead right and uh, so and uh, he did go on to say that uh, yes maybe for uh, uh, someone who's in that 18 to 21 year old uh, period where it's more important to build a social network than to then uh, uh, to have meaningful conversations within the social network uh, parties are useful but not outside that uh, limited uh, context and uh, yeah uh, while his specific point about uh, loud music and uh, not having very deep conversations is true I think he does the overall genre of parties a dis- disservice by saying that it's completely impossible for uh, interesting con- conversations to happen with parties, especially because one of the f- uh, functions or outcomes of a uh, party is introducing strangers to each other so that they can then have all new interesting conversations. I would in fact go so far as to say that uh, one other area where I disagree with uh, Tyler Cowen is getting drunk and then having a conversation is a mag- truly magnificent thing. Well, I suppose it depends on how drunk and what the particular yes. person has been uh, drunk. <laughs> sure, so not so drunk that you can stand, but getting a little buzz and then having a conversation I often find is way better than having a sober conversation, at least in my experience. Uh, sometimes in my experience too, but uh, my uh, reaction to alcohol has varied a lot over the years. And there, there were a couple of years uh, around 2010-2011 where I would have been in absolute agreement with uh, Tyler Cowen, where uh, <laughs> one one drink one drink would have done nothing for me. The second drink would have made me miserable. So yeah, I, in those in in those two years, I would have been very ha- happy to uh, stay sober and uh, made my uh, interesting co- conversation without the assistance of uh, alcohol. Okay. This actually reminds me of an old Russian proverb and one of my all-time favorite ones. Uh, two drinks is enough, three is too few. And uh, there are, of course, all the... Uh, cartoons and uh, infographics about the seven stages of drunkenness and Brooklyn Nine-Nine also had a uh, very nice uh, 
sketch, uh, sketch about this. Maybe we can find that and link that link to that too. The I'll be frank. The thing that I look forward the most to in this uh, conversation was the bullet point where you managed to link Tyler Cobb and Jane Jacobs, Jane Jacobs, sorry, Peter McCloskey and Akar Patel. Speak a little bit about Bania values. So, uh, if anyone has been reading Akar Patel's uh, columns, he's now with the Times of India, but I'm speaking of the time when he used to be with uh, Mint Lounge. Really? He, Akar Patel has a bit of a bean in his bonnet that he seems to see any kind of problem and eventually link it back to uh, caste in India. <laughs> okay. And uh, as part of this, he would uh, also talk about uh, how Banyas uh, and related castes, Shetis, uh, Chetiars, etc., by virtue of being creators and in business, would have to learn to negotiate, compromise, and uh, this made them able to uh, uh, work and find solutions much better than others. Uh, this is, of course, a gross generalization uh, that is probably untrue, but nevertheless very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, how it links to Tyler Cowen is that in the interview, Tyler Cowen says that uh, if there is uh, one thing we uh, we should appreciate about business and uh, uh, enjoy about business is that business teaches you to the the value of uh, cooperation and persuasion. So you cannot uh, make a successful business uh, unless you are able to cooperate within a team where or unless you're able to persuade either your team members or your customers or anyone else in the value chain you're working with. Uh, this, uh, I think, links up uh, pretty clearly with uh, Deirdre McCloskey's uh, repeated uh, writing about uh, the difference between uh, convincing someone which comes, uh, which refers to defeating them and uh, making sure that uh, they they follow what you do and persuading someone, which is done through uh, through speech, which is done through sweet words, and which uh, has more long-lasting mm-hmm. out- outcomes. And uh, Jane Jacobs, uh, while she uh, spoke less about uh, persuasion, she did have this line about how the job of a city is to facilitate the. Uh, humane and friendly interaction of strangers, which I think uh, is also what Tyler Cowen is talking about. And uh, I think uh, what Akar Patel misses when he says that Banyas are able to cooperate is that they probably don't have that great a track record of cooperating with strangers. <laughs> okay. So uh, the two things that this most strongly reminds me of, uh, weirdly, both are related to what I do uh, in terms of my career right now. Uh, I teach at a university in Pune. And the thing that petrifies me the most about taking up this job is the sense of complacency that might bring in. I don't have, as a full-time employee of a particular institute, academic institute in particular, the need to persuade people. And I worry about whether I might lose the ability to literally do business as a consequence of being forever placed in this particular education institute until I choose to leave. Okay. Okay. 
one. And second, it's this relates to the famous Lost episode now, but it's also uh, somewhat tied to how I view conducting a class. The distinction that you made between speaking from a position of authority and trying to defeat somebody in an argument, vis-a-vis having a conversation and trying to convince a person, classes I think are far too much about the former and not enough about the latter. At least in my experience in Pune. Okay. I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but business really is about cooperating and convincing rather than it is about speaking from a position of power and academia, I would argue, is the exact opposite. Well, uh, one of the complaints I have about my career is that uh, so much of uh, sales is now done purely on price and uh, whoever is the lowest bidder in a reverse auction that the scope for persuasion with uh, between myself and the customer has been uh, brought down massively. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, even within that, that still uh, means that I have a lot of uh, persuasion to do with my colleagues, with the uh, with juniors and seniors, with uh, suppliers. But uh, so I think the. Uh, we do tend to uh, worry a bit that we are not getting the opportunities for uh, persuasion that uh, we wish were there. But I I, I don't know if, uh, how it is for you in your career, but I imagine that uh, whilst, uh, while setting a syllabus, while setting a, a course structure and having it uh, approved, uh, you would still be called upon to exercise your powers of persuasion. Right. Uh, so maybe not in the classroom, but outside the classroom, sure. I, sure. I mean, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't, uh, of course, fix the uh, uh, issue that the classroom is still a uh, place where uh, convincing rather than persuading is going on. But uh, I think as far as your uh, personal angst that your uh, skill of persuasion is falling Maybe you're a little too worried. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. Okay, the next bullet point uh, that I wanted to speak about was about uh, moving from cities, sorry, moving to cities in order to escape monopsonies. What this reminds me the most of is uh, Dr. Ambedkar's tyranny of the village. I don't know if that's a point that uh, you had in mind or Tyler Coven may have had in point uh, in mind. But the need to escape two cities is something I think is an imperative for Indian society. But would you agree? Uh, so I did not have uh, Dr. Ambedkar's uh, prescription in mind while listening to this uh, episode. I mm-hmm. don't think uh, Tyler Cowan had this in mind either. They, they, they were speaking more in terms of an issue which has been discussed on Econ Talk before, which mm-hmm. is that uh, in an extreme case, uh, where uh, uh, if you are an employee and if you're uh, in the market for a job and your job market is uh, both geographically isolated because uh, it's in a rural area somewhere Mm -hmm. and if there is uh, not and if there is only one large employer around which uh, which is uh, which could be a large uh, petrochemical plant or a large uh, agribusiness plant or food processing plant mm-hmm. 
you are in uh, you are in danger of being in a monopsony market where there is practically speaking only one purchaser for your labor or your employment mm-hmm. um and uh, uh not to get too much into it but uh, this has been a running argument uh, on econ talk for many episodes i think there was an uh, episode with noah smith where this comes up uh, uh in pretty sharp detail mm-hmm. but uh, uh it, it it is uh, uh talking about uh, discussion prevalent uh, both in economics and in popular culture right now which is that as uh, business is getting b- bigger are there fewer and fewer employers and because of that uh, are people who are uh, looking for jobs having to face with a uh, monopsony or an oligopsony and uh, Tyler Cowen's point is that uh, look, uh, the monopsony is a danger only in a very rural area where a single large employer can can dominate, and the best way to escape uh, a monopsony is to head to a city where there are multiple large employers. Okay, so I was just uh, as you were speaking, looking up the original Ambedkar quote. Uh, he mentions the love of the intellectual Indian for the village community is of course infinite, if not pathetic. what is a village but a sink of localism a den of ignorance narrow mindedness and communalism ignoring the sociological aspects in a sense or at least maybe uh, it's confirmation bias on my part but i'm tempted to link at least a sink of localism with monopsony behavior the idea is uh, at least ambedkar spoke about this and i don't remember the context in which he wrote it now but the idea is that it is almost imperative for india to be able to reform itself in terms of caste to be able to escape the narrow mindedness that a village offers whether it is in the sense of a monopsony where it comes to economics or a monopsony when it comes to seeking out hierarchy in the village it's it comes out only in terms of caste i mean well probably not only in terms of caste Wait, uh, I mean, I think we've uh, been quite ingenious in fi- uh, finding other uh, other uh, ways and axes on which to be nasty. But uh, <laughs> uh, of of course, none of that takes away from what uh, 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 Dr. Ambedkar has said. Um, mm-hmm. If I have some pessimism about that, I feel that uh, the especially on the sociological aspects. moving to the city is necessary but not sufficient true true okay uh there was a point that i was intrigued about coming back to the blog post uh about prime capital takedown referring to the human capital having measurable effects can you speak about what the context was over here yeah so uh, brand capital and uh, i think we've spoken about this on the last last episode has mm-hmm. has has a belief that uh all of education is purely uh, signaling that you have a credential it's it's a big game uh, of credentialing and that students are wasting a lot of time and money uh, spending four years in college uh, and right. paying to get paying to get a degree mm-hmm. and uh, i don't know if he's the one who made this argument but in its extreme form uh, the uh, this argument goes that uh, high school students should just uh, everyone should just uh, write the sat the mm-hmm. uh, send their sat score to employers and the employers should then uh, take their uh, 
pick of the highest uh, uh, scoring students the the four years along the way is uh, just a waste of time and money um and uh, Tyler Cowen then uh, cites a lot of uh, examples to uh, say that no uh, education is not merely credentialing it uh, ha it it has measurable uh, effects where which show that uh, it is actually building skills and uh, giving you uh, problem solving abilities or some kind of knowledge base Okay. All right. Uh, I don't think we're going to have the time on at least this particular uh, episode to delve into the Churchill episode. So let's finish by talking very briefly about the Friends uh, episode, or rather the Friends book that we just read. For a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that I've always enjoyed watching Friends. It there was a remarkable, at least to me, fall in terms of quality over the last three or four seasons. But what did you enjoy reading about where that book was concerned? Uh, I mean, I'd go so far to say as that uh, it peaked in season five and uh, everything uh, after that was downhill. But uh, mm -hmm. I mean, this is of course a matter of taste and I don't know if we want to make it that kind of podcast. We, <laughs> no. I mean, so, uh, I'll, I'll interrupt you to say that the first three or four seasons were a little like Seinfeld, which to me is a very big compliment and the others weren't. And that... That to me is how I think about the pre and post division trends. I mean, I I think again uh, at, at some point when something becomes uh, really really big and popular, mm -hmm. the fans of that can be far more annoying <laughs> uh, than any mistake which the thing itself makes. Oh, I agree. Uh, okay, so yeah, uh, this is a book called uh, I'll Be There For You, The One About Friends, which mm -hmm. is uh, written by this uh, writer called Kelsey Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she works with Refinery29. Right. And uh, it's just a very short, uh, quick book. So I don't think it has a lot of original research, but uh, it uh, documents the... Uh, the casting process for Friends, it documents uh, what uh, Kaufman and Crane were doing uh, before they started uh, writing Friends and became successful with that. Uh, it talks about how the six main cast members used to uh, collectively bargain uh, for what they would be paid. And uh, a, a couple of uh, uh, chapters on other issues on, for example, uh, how, how friends uh, treated uh, uh, LGBT issues and uh, how uh, that treatment was very much part of its time. So, okay. yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, two questions that I had about this uh, with regard to what you just spoke about. One, what did Kaufman and Crane do in terms of what experiences they have that got them to the stage where they could write friends? So, Kaufman and Crane had originally been, uh, I think, in uh, college together. And in the uh, theater club, maybe it was a uh, theater program as well. Okay. And uh, they they did that. They uh, uh, they then completely lost touch. So somehow they ended up together. 
they wrote a bunch of other uh, uh, series. One was uh, slightly successful, and it was one of uh, the early HBO original series. I can't remember the name right now. Okay. And uh, this got them, uh, but that got them noticed. They then turned in about uh, three uh, complete duds. And uh, it, uh, the writer does make it make it seem that uh, had they delivered another dud instead of friends, it might have been the end of the road for them. Remarkable. Okay. And the second point, and the one that unfortunately because of a lack of time, we'll probably have to end with uh, right now. Is it to you weird or notable that friends is still somewhat of a cultural totem pole for anybody who watches television? that there has not been a replacement for the cultural significance that Friends has had. I mean, there have, of course, been other series that have been popular, but the way people still watch and revere Friends, is it not slightly weird and perhaps even depressing? I, I think it's perhaps not that weird that people still watch and revere Friends. What I find uh, slightly uh, off-putting is that people re-watch Friends. <laughs> I'm slightly ashamed to say that I'm going to plead guilty to that. Well, so so am I. I've been doing it the last couple of weeks, but uh, mm-hmm. it uh, I, I do feel that if you are re-watching Friends, uh, there is a massive opportunity cost of what you could be watching or reading in its place. Oh, that that is perhaps the most depressing thing to think about, and so let's not. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, this book does uh, focus on how uh, even 20 years later and mm-hmm. uh, uh, young people are s- still get, getting into Friends and watching it for the first time right. because it uh, does have a certain uh, premise that is slightly fantastical, but still very enjoyable. And relatable. Uh, well, it, it says it's not that relatable because something like this could never uh, happen in real life, but it is something that you would always want to happen in your real life. Aspirationally relatable. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right, great. Uh, Arist, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again soon. Thank you, Ashish. See you soon. See you. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to That Reminds Me, Episode 1D. Today's conversation was between Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. Ashish's blog is econforeverybody.com and Adish's blog is adish.net. That Reminds Me is a podcast produced by Ashish Kulkarni and Adish Khanna. You can find all episodes of this podcast at thatreminds.me where you can leave your comments. You can also email us. Our address is feedback at thatreminds.me. The podcast is supported in part by a grant from Emergent Ventures. The show music is The Carnival of the Animals, performed by the Seattle Roots Symphony, courtesy Mizopic at musopic.org.